ButcherBox makes it easy and convenient to get the highest quality grass-fed, grass-finished beef, organic free-range chicken, heritage breed pork, and wild-caught seafood without any antibiotics or added hormones delivered straight to your door. For me, I love their ribeye steak with a smoke and reverse sear, their tender belly bacon, which is some of the best uncured bacon on planet Earth. ButcherBox partners with people, small farmers included, that treat their animals in the best possible way and never give any added antibiotics or hormones. When you join, you choose your box and delivery frequency. You can cancel at any time without any penalty, and ButcherBox delivers amazing and fresh meat right to your door in a 100% recyclable box. For a limited time only, get free chicken nuggets for a year and 10% off your first box when you sign up today and use the code WP. That's a 22-ounce bag of gluten-free organic chicken nuggets in every order for a year when you sign up at butcherbox.com forward slash WP and use the code WP. Welcome to Western Contours Podcast, sharing experiences, providing insight, and looking for solutions to become better hunters. We talk gear, on and off season preparation, tips and tactics, conservation, and finding inspiration in the outdoors as sportsmen and women. Thank you for joining us as we share our love for all things Western hunting. Today I sit down with Brittany Longoria. We hash out pushing past comfort zones, our presence as hunters in a non-hunting world, and trailblazing for women in our hunting community. All right, everybody, we've got Brittany Longoria with us today, and I'm very, very excited that she has been able to join us. Thanks, Britt. Absolutely. My pleasure. All right. I want to kind of dive in really quick and um, and let you kind of introduce yourself, um, how you kind of got started in the outdoors and how that kind of led to where you are today. Well, it was absolutely an evolution. I grew up on the coast of Maine. So hunting was related to whitetail and sea ducks and some grouse and woodcock hunting, basically all kind of cold weather, not necessarily high success rates. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So it wasn't always, it wasn't always a super fun thing. So out of the choices that I had growing up, I really, really fell in love with bird hunting because it was generally good weather. It was the fall. It was social. I raised bird dogs so I could see them working. Mm -hmm. Um, And I kind of developed a montage of, I don't want to hunt anything that's bigger than me. (laughs) So that was was how it got. I got myself out of having to go deer hunting with, with my dad because that was the coldest, most boring thing that I could think of. (laughs) So for me, hunting was definitely an evolution. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's, uh, that has been, I'm really glad that our deer season starts earlier and we're able to enjoy archery season while it's still somewhat, um, like right now it's very nice and it's cool and 
we've been able to enjoy it. Um, but yeah, I can see <laughs> when January gets here, <laughs> it's not necessarily the most fun. <laughs> Absolutely. And, and I mean, as, as I've progressed in, in my own hunting mm-hmm. that I understand better all the different elements that play into hunting and what makes a successful hunt and that it doesn't it's not just pulling the trigger and mm-hmm. it's not just being outside and it's not just being with the people and it's not just pushing yourself mentally or physically but it's a combination of of all of those and sometimes some hunts have more aspects of that than than the other very true. Very true. I would agree. Well, how you, you talked about your dad, was he a major factor in hunting or were there at the time any women that stood out to you that were kind of in that community? Hmm, let's see. I would say that it was very much my dad who I hunted with, mm-hmm. but a funny story was that the first time I went big game hunting was that I think my mom bought a hunt from one of the local Safari Club International chapters, and it was a parent child hunt. I'm sure it was it was probably marketed as a as a father son hunt, but my mom bought it and she was going to take me, <laughs> and she has never hunted a big game animal either. So we were both going to go and do this together. I think I was maybe. 12 or so and we went to Texas so we flew down from Maine to Texas and hunted on the wild ranch with Temple Thompson and you know we're going to shoot a couple exotics and stuff like that and this was going to be a fun girls trip well we were both so overwhelmed and nervous and like can we even do this like is this even possible for us to go and pull the trigger mm-hmm. and just all the different emotions and hesitations and self-doubt and then you know self-talk of having to build yourself back up and, yes you know all the different roller coasters that you go through so that was definitely something that was a, a defining moment that we we went and, and hunted and the first animal that I shot was a was a black Hawaiian mm-hmm. and it was like oh that well that that wasn't anything that wasn't a, as big of a deal as I thought because it was a fairly simplistic hunt mm-hmm. there wasn't a lot of stalking or doing or anything it was just for lack of a better term just And I was like, well, that that wasn't really what I was expecting or wanting. And I had kind of like a disappointment and kind of a little bit of a guilty feeling of just shooting something to to shoot it. Yeah. And I was like, wait a second. I want to to go on a a real hunt. If we're going on this mother-daughter hunt, I I want to to do something that defines in my head what a hunt should be like. So we went and then did a big hunt for a black buck. And that was much more of a quote unquote hunt that I had figured it would be like in, in my head with the stalking and the anticipation and, you know, having to control your breasts and focusing on the shot placement and the animals moving and you're moving with it and kind of the, the stuff that, I developed a really, really big passion for. Mm-hmm. 
And like you said, it's an evolution of it. It's trying out the different things and figuring out what is your your favorite, what is your um, desire behind it all. Absolutely. Well, how... um, I've talked with my daughter and I've talked with a couple of other people about, um, and my son, about hunting in general, but also about, uh, like you said, the goals and the end game aren't necessarily having a productive hunt. Yes, we all want to have um, a victory in the end where we come back with meat or, um, you know, there's that end result, but there are goals along the way and there are lessons along the way that you learn that truly you cannot learn in a classroom. You can't learn through a book. You can't learn through YouTube um, or Instagram. There are lessons along the way that you kind of start putting into your pocket and they grow you as a hunter. And I'm wondering, what are some of these lessons that you've learned along the way that you've held on two in your pocket that have affected each hunt that you go on? Wow, that's a, that's a great <laughs> question. Um, what, what ran through my head first was just the, the biological side of it, of mm-hmm. understanding the animal's anatomy to understand your shot placement and comparing different continents to different species of animals, mm-hmm. the, the anatomy is, is totally different. So you really have to study the species that you're hunting in order to be an ethical, efficient hunter, regardless mm-hmm. of where you are, because, mm-hmm. you know, you, you hunt whitetail and their vitals are in a completely different section than a African antelope that's really far forward. Mm-hmm. Or how do you shoot a Cape Buffalo when it's facing you versus you need to get a second shot into it when it's moving away from you and Mm -hmm. stuff like that. So I think that that has been quite an interesting lessons, learning things the hard way, um, regretting shots that Mm -hmm. I I shouldn't have taken and the humility and the humbling aspect of that and how it makes you a better hunter moving forward. Um, when you asked the question as well, I also was thinking about the lessons of when my leopard photo went Mm -hmm. viral. Yeah. And that from a public side, it really taught me that all of our images and what we're portraying tells a story. And we have to be very conscious of how it's being interpreted by the non-hunting community. Yeah. Yep. That's a, I just reading back and looking over some of the stuff that you've been through in the past year and a half. Um, I've, I've gotten little bits and pieces of that, um, from commenters on articles and things like that. And, there's a lot that you have to look over 100%. Um, sometimes not even looking at things, but there are some things that you can't get past. You can't move. Um, you can't move around. You actually have to walk through it. And that's kind of like what you said, those struggles of hard lessons. Um, 
that we learn along the way sometimes mean a little bit more when they aren't, they don't have a positive ending. Um, because not all things that we learn have a positive ending. Um, in fact, I learn more from the mistakes that I've made because I don't ever want to make those mistakes again. Um, whether it's, like you said, a bad shot or guessing um, on shot placement. I never, mm-hmm. I've done it once and I will never do it again. Um, uh, learning posting, um, being very careful. And I want to make sure, and I'm sure people who have read your story and heard your story know that you did not leak that photo. Um, you are a very private person normally and leading up to that. And so someone else did that. That was not a place that you put yourself into, um, on purpose. And so, uh, but as we move on and the things that we do post, it's um, those lessons that we learn along the way. Man, the hard ones, they just sometimes they mean more because they stick with you a little bit more. Hard. It's it's harder on your soul. Well, absolutely. And it's it's those lessons that that define who you are as a person and, and how you tell your story and changes your life. Yeah. And how you respond. I, I heard you on a podcast and one thing that I, um, it, one thing that stood out to me the most was your response, um, and how an emotional response will never get hunters in a light where we're hoping that they will be at some point. Um, emotional responses receive emotional responses. And so that's just, I commend you on that and how you have reacted to the whole situation. Thank you. I think that one of the things that I saw through all of the noise during the the first couple of weeks that I was just receiving so much hate that it became repetitive and it, almost became benign that Mm -hmm. I I could look through what all this hate was about and understand better what they were asking. And they weren't asking for me to defend what I was doing. And culturally, hunters defend themselves with facts and figures. Mm -hmm. We, We rely on we provide X amount of money to conservation resources, natural par- or national parks and wildlife protection and research studies and this and this and this. And, and that's all great. And that's an awesome, awesome byproduct that we should all be very, very proud of. But that's not why we hunt. No. And when, when someone says, I'm a hunter conservationist. It's like, yeah, absolutely. You you are doing some good stuff that parlays into some real world results. But at the end of the day, you're a hunter first. Mm-hmm. And that's what they're asking you about is they're asking you why. Why do you hunt? They don't want to hear about the results and Mm-mm. all the benefits and the ripple effect of economies and wildlife populations, they are confused as to why hunters have this drive and this DNA and this soul that's different than 
the non-hunting community that that pushes us to climb those mountains or to spend those hours in the cold, wet swamps or to, you know, be still for afternoons and evenings in a tree stand. And there's something different about us. Mm -hmm. And when we start to articulate that internal voice and really look at why we seek out these things, why we spend our money doing what we do and our time and articulate that, that it's interesting because the the non-hunting public relates more to that emotion and to Mm -hmm. that internal dialogue. Yeah, I would agree. I would agree. And we're doing ourselves a disservice if we don't know that reason. You know what I mean? Um, I think that we as hunters have to find that reason before we keep hunting Um, because we will always be asked the questions, um, why do you hunt? And you need to know that answer for yourself and for them. Yeah, yeah. Um, And I I never had to think about that like like you said earlier I was always private you know this was this was for me this was a family thing I did with friends I did with my husband my dad this was this was for us and our circle close circle and community and to have to think about why is a very very hard question Mm -hmm. yep and there are many reasons I think that um, I think the one that we fall into the easiest is providing food for our families. Um, I think it's a great one. I, I don't want to downplay that one at all, but uh, there there are deeper reasons behind it as well. Um, whether it's an innate desire to get out there, um, I mean there there are many reasons why, um, and I think that. We, Guy and I have talked about this, the falling to meat in the freezer um, shouldn't be your only reason. I think it's a great reason, but it shouldn't be your only reason. You should look a little bit deeper than that. It's an an easy thing for the non-hunting community to say, well, then go to the supermarket. Right. Why, Why do you have to hunt? It still comes back to the question of why. Yeah. And that's why I have a hard time when someone says, I only hunt for the freezer. Mm-hmm. And it's like, no, there, there's a there's a reason why you choose to do what you do over and above anything else. Yeah. And growing up in Maine, I mean, that was that was the the rule. I mean, my dad instilled me, I mean, you do not kill something unless you're going to eat it. Mm-hmm. Period. Full stop. That's that's what we do. So I had that as my ethos when I started hunting, but again, as an evolution and working with a lot of indigenous people and traveling around the world, it came to realize that consuming something wasn't necessarily the highest form of reverence Mm. for the experience. Mm -hmm. And I can view the whole process and the whole adventure and the journey as part of the reverence just as much as I can look at a photograph that's a field photo or look at a piece of taxidermy or look at a beautiful 
back strap mm-hmm. on my plate yeah. and, and have that connection and have that feeling that ties back to that moment that is ever, ever present, regardless of where in the world I do what I do. Right. And you have been to a lot of places. Um, how did you get one of my questions when I was looking over stuff before we were going to talk, one of my questions was, how did you get into Africa? How did, um, because you've just with, like with hunting, your um, who you are and what you do has evolved uh, over time. And so you spent a lot of time in Africa. Yes. I, I literally woke up one day and said, I'm going to move to, to Africa and have a safari company. Mm-hmm. And it was, I'm sure my parents are like, oh, that's, that's nice, dear. <laughs> like, okay. How old were you when you that's did that? Like, probably 11, 10 or 11. <laughs> yeah. Um, and it, I mean, I was, I was wild. I, I would be drawing you know, safari camps, blueprints of what I wanted my lodge to look like and putting together, you know, make-believe safari catalogs. I mean, I was just a little goofball. Every tiny little project I could turn into it being Africa-centric, that's that's what it was as far as school went. Um, And then growing up within Safari Club International, my folks were very involved on the on the leadership side, so I was always a volunteer, whatever event it was. And I remember being in Maine, and it was probably when I was probably thirteen, or yeah, I think it was thirteen. And um, a gentleman named Steph Swanepoel of Noomson Safaris mm-hmm. kind of jokingly said, "Hey, you're such a hard worker. Why don't you come down and work for me?" And I was like. Okay. And so I ran over my parents and said, Hey, I'm going to go work in South Africa for the summer. And at 13, mom and dad were like, how about you wait a little bit? (laughs) We're not not ready to put you in a plane quite yet. So I kept on them for the next couple of years. And then when I was 15, they put me on a plane and I flew down to South Africa and worked for um, on Safaris, doing everything from gutting to bartending to running into town driving a stick shift without even having like my learner's permit. <laughs> <laughs> but you can. You <laughs> can over there. 15-year-old in, in Africa. And, you know, just running and loving in that safari life and safari world. So that just kind of solidified my my dreams of what I wanted to do. So I went to university, the university in, in Pretoria, and studied natural sciences and business business management, got into freelance guiding, uh, ran bird hunts, um, helped at different hunting camps as needed, and just kind of worked my way through the game capture and overlanding and safari guiding world, got mm-hmm. my pilot's license. And then um, then I had a, a basically a, a car hijacking and a break-in within about three weeks of each other and said, okay, I'm done. Yeah. <laughs> I'm coming back. I'm coming back to the States. Not, yeah. not what I, what I wanted to live with. So packed up my German short hair and all my prized African books <laughs> and moved back home. Um, and then being in 
in the States, I missed Africa. So Mm. that's when I really got into the nonprofit side of things, knowing how things worked on the ground. But being an American, I was able to do a lot of liaison work with nonprofits in Eastern and Southern Africa. Right. So that's kind of kept my tie as far as on on the professional side, on the fundraising and development and nonprofit management side of things. I um, I spent two weeks in Africa back, oh, 2005. Um, I, we went down there. We were in South Africa for one week and we were in Kenya for one week. And I didn't do hunting. This was before I had began my hunting um, career and even was even introduced to hunting. But um, I was able to see the beauty of Africa. Um, we saw the need of Africa, but I was so grateful that they showed us the beauty of Africa. Um, and not just in the Southern part, but in Kenya as well and flying over all of the different countries and seeing the beauty and seeing the animals and seeing the landscape and the people and the communities. It was, um, it definitely, I have, there is a piece of my heart I left there, 100%. It's, it's hard not to. Africa certainly gets, gets in your blood. And for me, it's what I strive for with, with my hunting is the, is the wilderness, is the wilderness experience. So we mm-hmm. go to wild, wild places where, I mean, you're driving on dirt roads for 20 hours to get to even where you're going to be based out of. Um, and that's, that's been quite a, a joy to see, to see real, real Africa. Not, mm-hmm. not just the game farms right. and the business model of, of hunting, which is, which is awesome. It's very similar to how things are in Texas where you have value of the individual animal and kind of ownership and property rights but to go into kind of a, a step back in time. Yeah. And the road less travels for sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That, that's what really gets my heart pumping. I love it. Absolutely. Now you've done a little bit of trailblazing for women. Um, a, a few of your posts recently, especially have stood out to me um, being a, uh, a later onset hunter and looking for, man, we've, we've talked a lot about being able to reach out and touch another woman who hunts is a little bit difficult. Um, it's not, I don't have a whole lot of women within arm reach to, to find mentors or to follow behind their footsteps. And so I'm grateful for social media for that, to be able to find women that um, I can learn from, that I can grow from, uh, that other people can grow from, and then pass it on to the people behind me uh, who are right behind me in in those kind of lessons, which is mentoring. You're growing your community, but... um, but you've done some awesome trailblazing for us. And um, and like you said in your most recent post, I am a woman. I am a hunter. I'm not a man. I do the same things that men do, but I am a woman. And 
you have done some pretty great things moving into places and um, and standing up for that. And I want to applaud you for it, but I also kind of want to hear how that journey has been. I guess for me, growing up within really the safari industry from age 15, sitting around campfires with a bunch of old smelly PHs uh-huh. guides, <laughs> telling yeah. dirty jokes and, you know, everything like that, that I felt like I needed to be one of the guys. Mm-hmm. And so I, you know, would be right there along laughing with them and everything like that. And then as I've progressed into womanhood and defining who I am as a mother and as someone who loves hunting and wants to be taken seriously as an individual. And as you say, as, as a woman, not one of the guys and, and not, and this is, I'm going to probably step on some people's toes, but also not sexualizing Mm -hmm. But you see, you see these two sides of 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 women that you you sometimes see um, the bikini shots mm-hmm. and the, the those types of things, and then you sometimes see the you know the the, the guys guy you know kind of like you know yeah. that they're they're hanging out with their their brothers, and I don't have a problem with with either of them, but. I want to be able to define that I can be a lady mm-hmm. and I can be feminine and still climb those mountains, probably with half the amount of complaints as most of those guys. <laughs> 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 because, 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 when, because when you try to compare yourself to a man and try mm-hmm. to say, hey, I can do just the same what you do, then it, then it takes away from being a woman. Right. And, and that specialness of, of, of your own journey. And then when you, when you, go down that sexualizing side of it, that it takes away the sacredness and the reason why we're out doing what we're doing. So it's kind of, you know, you you have to find a good balance between, between the two on, on whatever, whatever journey your, yours is. And, Mm -hmm. And like I said, I hope I don't offend people that are out there doing one or the other, but just for me personally, that's how I found that I wanted to define my role and my vision of who I wanted to be perceived as and act like and and stuff. I think that that's a good way of putting it. I like, you're not going to find a picture of me on social media in a bikini with my bow. Um, mainly because I don't want to embarrass the crap out of my kids one day. Um, but, but, but the true reason is because I don't want to distract from what I'm doing. Um, and that is something that as I have grown as a hunter, I've had to keep in my mindset. What, again, going back to what you said, what is the reason why? What is your why? And my why is not to distract from what I'm doing. Um, I don't want to, my body is not the reason I'm hunting. My, um, 
my focus uh, for attention is not the reason I'm hunting. Um, the reason for this podcast is not to elevate myself. It's to highlight amazing women in our community. And so it's... Um, like you said, it's a balance, but you also have to go back to that reason. Why? Why are you hunting? Why are you, uh, what is your reason behind each and every single post that you, that you put out there? Um, and I don't want to distract from the real reason. That's perfect. That's mm-hmm. awesome. Mm-hmm. Um, and I hope to pass that on to both of my kids, my son and my daughter, um, I want my kids to find their whys. Why are you doing this? Why would you pull a trigger? Why would you let go of a bowstring? Um, and know that reason before you pull, uh, before you let go. Um, because that's what we stand on. And once you have that, um, then you stay true to it. And I think it can be kind of hard sometimes, but... Um, Respect for others and respect for yourself comes first. Absolutely, and it's it's one of those those things that why do we hunt mm-hmm. comes down to so many different reasons. Oh yeah, and and all those different reasons that you might perceive as the reason why you do it might not necessarily be the reason why I do it. Right. But at the end of the day all hunters are hunters. And Mm -hmm. it's so cool because you can go anywhere in the world and there is hunting within the culture Mm -hmm. and you have a deep tying connection to humanity regardless of of time or destination. Mm -hmm. Yep, it's a common language. (laughs) Absolutely. And it, it's an emotional language. Mm-hmm. And again, it, it ties back to that whole thing of if we as hunters can choose the images to tell the story that don't have words. And then when we speak on images that might not be perceived as we wish them to be, what I call my, my grip and grin, part of, <laughs> um, that you need to tell the story behind it because that that snapshot that second is is nowhere close to being the whole entire story right before and after of yeah. that of that moment yep the hard work is rarely seen in those after pictures um and like you said i mean talking about um talking about a lot of the hunts that you've been on the preparation is weeks in advance. It's, or months even, um, sometimes years, if you're saving money for things, um, the preparation for these things isn't, um, a quick, a quick fix. Um, absolutely. And you're, as you say, you're saving money, you're setting aside your disposable income to Mm -hmm. have these experiences. And so it's obviously a financial priority. And then it's the the physical preparation Mm -hmm. of working out and building up your cardio. Cause I mean, before I go on a mountain hunt, man, I'm putting in some miles running just to get my cardio up. Um, normally I'll work out like two or three times a week, but (laughs) before a mountain hunt, man, I need to go in there 
being physically prepped right. for what I'm about to do. Right. And then, of course, all of the equipment and gear and practicing, practicing shooting, knowing your equipment, mm-hmm. and then also working together with who you're hunting with, yeah. whether it's a significant other or a guide or a family member or as you're mentoring or something like that, it's like building that rapport and that relationship to be able to communicate and know what you're going to do in the field and how it's going to come to fruition. Right. It's kind of, there's a, there's a trifecta, I think, to hunting. You've got your mental, your physical, and your spiritual. No matter what background spiritually you come from, there is that level um, that you're putting in there. It's, it. It's all encompassing. Um, and like you said, on whichever continent you are, um, there, all three of those things are there. It, 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 it's amazing. And that's been one of those aspects that I've had some North American hunters or white-tailed deer hunters or bird hunters that have said, well, that's fine that you go and you travel and you hunted a leopard, but that has nothing to do with me and nothing to do with, with why I hunt. And it's like, whoa, <laughs> stop. Yeah. stop right there because I am a hunter. You are a hunter. Mm-hmm. If someone is attacking me from my leopard, this could be you yes. for your whitetail yes. or your pheasant. Maybe not today. Maybe that's not as an emotionally triggering predator, mm-hmm. but a hunter is a hunter and an attack on one hunter is an attack on all of us. Right. So regardless of species or intention or meat hunter versus selective traveling hunter mm-hmm. versus bow hunter versus rifle hunter, high fence, low fence, free range estate. I don't freaking care. A hunter <laughs> is a hunter. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's like, guys, if, if you divide into all these different, different sections, you're just, you're just opening the door mm-hmm. to the, the antis and the attacks. Yep. And, and again, I, I, you know, I keep, drilling on this and harping on it, but it comes down to that emotional connection of why we do what we do. Right. And that why, that that inside, that tribe, doesn't matter if it's a rough grouse in northern New England or a black-tailed deer in Alaska or a red stag in Argentina mm-hmm. or a buffalo in Africa. I mean, the reason we're out there doing what we do is the same. Yeah. Yep. And it's good to know. (laughs) It's good to know. It's good to be able to find commonality so that we can combine forces instead of divide. 100%. Yep. Can't say that enough. Yep. Well, I am a little, this is personally, I would really love to hear a little bit about your Pakistan uh, hunt. Um, If you can tell me a little bit about it. It was awesome. Um, it was my, it was just so foreign. Uh-huh. And I mean, you, you get off the plane and people are in, you know, full garbs and robes and I mean, everything. I mean, you, you're not, you're not in Kansas, Dorothy. No. <laughs> this is, this is pretty serious travel. Um, and 
we went and, and stayed in in an area that basically all the hunters for those specific species, so Blanford Ural and Acid Ibex, go to this one area. So we're hosted by generally the same villagers that are the scouts and kind of the game guards and stuff like that. And they're all in literally sandals and robes climbing these crazy jagged mountains. I mean, you you walk 20 paces and stop and catch your breath mm-hmm. yeah. on, on like the kids section. And they're out there without ankle support and they're just like little mountain goats running up the side of these these hills that are like prehistoric desert looking, like kind of what you would almost imagine coming out of a, a image of a Bible, like, yeah. like a desert where, where it's just dry and barren and rugged and gnarly. And you sit there and you watch these mountains and you look and you're like, how can there be anything alive here? This mm. just is so hostile. And then you hear the clip clop of, of hooves coming or something like that. And you, you're like, oh my gosh, you, you see the, these mountain species that are incredible. So just being in the environment and seeing these animals where they live is wild unto itself. Culturally, there certainly were some differences, especially with me being a woman, right? that had to be taken into account. Um, so, for instance, when I would be around camp, I would wear more like a long maxi dress or something like that. I would cover my shoulders. Right. Never covered covered my my head or my hair or anything like that. In, in Pakistan, there's a lot of a lot of different um, sectors of of Muslim, so not all of them are super super strict. Okay. And um, so it, it's okay to have your hair down or or back or, or whatever. And then hunting wise, I just hunted in my normal hunting mountain hunting gear, right? And you know a normal camo shirt and stuff like that. And there there was no problem. No problem with that. Um, one of the kind of goofy things is that that the men, the, the local men, wouldn't really want to talk to me. Yeah. <laughs> they didn't want to talk to me. <laughs> it was kind of like, oh, why is she here? What is she doing? Uh-huh. <laughs> kind of, he probably kind of shocked them. Yeah. <laughs> but man, once I had my Blanford down on the ground, and they had performed the halal, the, mm-hmm. the Muslim cutting of, of the throat to sanctify and bless the meat so that they could they could eat it. Mm-hmm. They were so thankful and so excited. And I thought that I was just the coolest person ever. <laughs> and they were smiling and talking to me. I don't know what the heck they were saying, <laughs> but it was Pakistani. But they were so, so different. And, and it just kind of ties back to that whole concept of regardless of culture, when we experience these emotional hardships and aspects that require us that require of us when we're hunting, it breaks barriers down. Yes. Totally breaks down barriers and opens up friendships and conversations that otherwise, why would a local tribal Pakistani guy have any interest in a white American girl? Yeah. I mean, it's just totally foreign. Mm-hmm. And then what was really special is we took a bunch of humanitarian gear 
to a local girls' school. We brought 30 backpacks and all the school supplies for 30 students for a year. So all all the paper and workbooks and pencils and pencil sharpeners and soccer balls with the soccer pump needles and, I mean, backpacks and everything. Yeah. And these girls were little itty-bitty things all the way up to probably middle school age. Mm-hmm. They were so shy. Oh, my goodness. That was probably the first Americans that they had had seen in within the school walls. And, you know, I'm I'm there and I'm trying to be sweet with the girls and talk with them and stuff like that. And I know from, you know, just conversation that Shikar means like like as Safari is in Africa, Shikar is in. Asia. Okay. So I was saying to them that I went on a shikar in their mountains and hunted their animals and thank you very much for letting me be here in in their village and stuff like that and having someone translate for me. And they were just shocked. They were just like, how can a woman have, mm-hmm. let alone an American? And so then I started showing them my field photos and they were just done and so they were coming up and like touching me and like like are you real through your mind but then like grabbing my hand and like saying stuff to me and I mean I again I have no idea what they said but it was you know tying back to the concept of of appreciating their piece of the world and they understood what I had just done and that again, broke down the barrier and and wide eyes that they were so excited and appreciative and understood. So it was really, really interesting and very, very different. And we have two more hunts booked for Pakistan because we we liked it so much. I mean, it it really was a, a very, very special, special place. I think that um, when people listen and they go, well, how can I, like you said, how can I, um, I mean, I wouldn't say compare, but how how can I get anything? How can I bring myself into this? How can I be a part of this when I would never maybe even have the opportunity to go over there? And the way I look at it is whether you are going across the street or you are going to a different state in the U.S. or to a different country, the way you look at a hunt and the community that you're going to be hunting in, you are respecting the values that those people have. Um, you are respecting the traditions. You're respecting uh, the land and the rules and the laws. And you prep for that no matter where you're going. You have to prep to go out of the country. You have to know what these laws and rules are and respect them. You have to do that crossing state lines. Um, and I think that... When you think of it that way, there's commonality there. Whether you're going one place or another, you are striving to be a part of that community. I myself would, when going to Colorado or to Montana or to California to hunt, I would want to be as much so involved in how they do things over there as I would here in Tennessee. Or if I were to go to a different country, I would want to do things as much as I could like they would traditionally and respect their ways 
as I would in Tennessee. And, um, and I think that's where that common ground is because we as hunters need to find that. I love it. I think that's a great comment. I think another, another aspect is, is also tying to the concept of, of wilderness and wildness Mm -hmm. that when we strive to put ourselves in wild places that it fills a part of our soul that we need Mm -hmm. that when we seek out these areas that a normal person you know a, a tourist of you know just someone from the city wouldn't necessarily go to off the beaten path but that is definitely one of those really special elements of hunters. Right. And regardless, again, regardless, as you say, whether it's across the street in your, in your backyard, in the woods behind your house or, you know, across an ocean, it's the places that we find ourselves in the cultures. But for me, that's that, that wild side, that wild wilderness, area is something that I just, I just crave. Yeah. And you can find it anywhere. Um, you yeah, can that, find that it anywhere. Is all over. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like I said, it's, it's woods behind your house. I mean, you, you have that solitude and that, that feeling and that spirit of place that drives us to go back there and to wake up before dawn to set out those decoys or to get into the sand or something like that. But those are the moments that that tie us all together. Yeah. I remember as a kid, and it reminds me every time I get in the woods, as a kid, we would go to um, the mountains in East Tennessee and northern Alabama, northern Georgia, kind of right there where the Appalachian Mountains kind of die off. And, um, and we would go out there and we had freedom as kids to go out into the woods and kind of create our own um, environment, our own place. And the woods felt so big. Um, we would get in these caves and they'd be covered in moss and you could feel it in between your toes when you took your shoes off and you could smell the dampness when you were in the cave. You could smell the sweetness when you were around the trees. And it takes me back every time I get into the woods, then the nostalgia of it. And so I think it connects me as an adult to where I was back then because I feel small again when I get out there and it's quiet and it it kind of brings me to a place of respect for this big huge place that I'm in in that moment and what's so cool about what you just said is that that's what our ancestors felt too yes that feeling of I remember this there's mm-hmm. something in my soul that this is familiar and this is comfortable and this is peaceful and this is this is where 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 I'm supposed to be. Yes. I love it. I love it. It's just all encompassing. It just all and I think that's one of the reasons that I love hunting and that I wanna pass it down to my kids so badly. Um, whether they end up hunting or not, just knowing the skills, um and knowing and and feeling that feeling that that I feel, um, if they have that moment, it's that would be the highlight of of the day. Um, 
I do want to go back. You had said um, when we were talking about, hey, I'm a woman in this hunting community. Um, You said, if we start comparing ourselves, if we start saying, well, I can do that too. I can do it just like that. Um, In actuality, we, we can't. We are not built like men. Um, we are not, we don't have the structure in our bodies that are, that allow us the ability to do things like men. So we've had to adapt and we've had to figure out how can we do these things. And, and truly we've had to adapt kind of on our own and figuring it out because there are a lot of things that I've come across that they don't work for me because they're not built for me. And I'm wondering along your lines, it's so true. It's not built for me. My body was not built even, to handle even these as things. As, as clothes. I mean, yeah. I remember growing up that I was so sad that there weren't any hunting clothes mm-hmm. for a small framed girl. Yeah. So like growing up, I was wearing boy pants and it, w- it just wouldn't fit right. But I mean. That was my only option right. in the 90s. <laughs> well, and you, were, and you were cold. I just remember that. Being in oversized clothing, it allows the air in. And I would freeze. It's the same with a sleeping bag. And I'm grateful, grateful, grateful that I have found a bag that is short um, so that I don't have all the air at the bottom of my feet freezing me when I'm sleeping on ice in New Mexico. It's, um, it's little things like that. It's also boots fitting around my feet the right way or socks being too long on, on your heel and gathering there. Clothing is, is huge and can be pivotal in being comfortable, um, and not having to equipment. I mean, yes, I have a really high cheekbones so I need to have a really high comb on a on a shotgun mm-hmm. so that's always custom made I can't go into a, a store and pick up a shotgun that fits me no no I can't either I've, I've had to definitely work um my shotgun for my arm length because mm-hmm. otherwise exactly. it's going to demolish my shoulder um so I have to have it I have to work it to where it could be shorter um there, there's just there, there are a bunch of things. I've heard it on the flip side of women who um, are not petite that they are um, that they are built differently, and they themselves can't find some things that that fit. And so it's it's that it's clothing, it's equipment, it's um, it's figuring out how to move your animal. Um, at the end of the day, me dragging a huge eight-point white-tail deer out of the woods by myself has been very difficult. <laughs> <laughs> Up a daggum hill because they always go down to water. And so um, figuring out, I've had to figure out using a jet sled, a Chappelle jet sled, has made me an independent hunter. And that feeling is amazing, but getting there has been difficult. That's fabulous. Just figuring it out. I, it's, I think at the end of the day, 
looking at what I've overcome, look at looking at what other women have overcome in adapting things to fit um, their hunting lifestyle. Um, there's pride in it and there's um, there's a sense of accomplishment. Being able to be an independent hunter has been more, it has been more rewarding than actually harvesting an animal. It's just that ability to look at yourself and say, I can, I can do that. Yeah. Yeah. And gotcha. I don't do it like you. And the way that you do it doesn't look like the way I do it. But at the end of the day, the results are the same. That's so, perfect. Yeah. I, it's, it's been interesting. And I'm wondering, we've, in a few posts that you've had recently, I think that women are kind of pushing that line of what is accepted um, and what is kind of reaching outside those lines a little bit. And I, I think that there, I, before I, I posted what I posted today about, you know, just people saying, oh, well, I don't think you could make it to the trailhead, let alone climb up the mountain. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, what? <laughs> and then it was, it was just shocking to me that someone would even say that mm -hmm. or just simply assume that. But it was also this, this element of, wow, you, you really can't read or judge a, a book by its cover. Right. I mean, sure. I, I can be a lady, but it just, there, there's no stopping someone, whether they're in a wheelchair or adaptive equipment or, you know, a woman versus a man or whatever. I mean, hunting is hunting. I mean, you, you get out there and you make a plan and you find people to support you and, and help you along the way. Agreed. It's a, a very rewarding and gratifying experience on, on both ends to yes. be able to depend on one, on someone as well as being able to support someone else. I mean, when my husband and I hunt together, I'm, you know, I'll usually, especially on a mountain hunt, I'll carry his backpack. So I'll stick all of my gear and all of his gear. So I'm carrying two person's weight of, of yeah. stuff. And because he needs both hands free if because he's a bow hunter in order to be able to shoot quickly. Right. So, you know, okay, let, let's see, let's see someone else climb up and down those, those mountains with yeah. two person gear. And, you know, and, and he helps me with, with range finding. I help him with range finding or he has a, a arrow shot that's not a hundred percent. Then I follow up with a, a rifle shot. And, you know, it's like we, we support each other and we're such a team and it's, it's really neat to see that in all aspects of hunting you know, youth mentorship, women mentorship, mm -hmm. new hunter men mentorship, but it it truly is a, a special thing to do on yourself, like for yourself. Mm -hmm. But it is so much more multiplied when shared. Yeah, and when taught, um, I think when share. I think okay, so s solo hunting has its. I mean, it, the things that you learn from solo hunting um, when you're having to do it by yourself, there there are lessons that cannot be replaced at all. When team hunting, um, 
there are things that you learn along the way that are specialized to you. What are you really good at? What do you bring to that team? And how do you work as a team? When you're teaching, there is a whole new aspect of it because things ingrain deeper and there's an excitement to see where this new person is going to go. And so it's no matter how you hunt, it's you're going to be growing um, yourself. But it would be really great to be able to hit each one of those, um, each one of those groups of your hunting um, to make you a more well-rounded hunter um, and teach you patience with yourself and with others. For sure. Mm-hmm. I yeah. agree completely. Yeah. And I think going into that, like we've talked, man, I've talked with so many people about the number of women coming into hunting um, and how that number is just, it's a huge number. But I've also been reading that the number of women exiting our community is is at a faster rate. And um, I think that like there are a couple of other women podcasters out there. And I think that there are some great women who are um, beginning to be heard. Um, and social media has helped out with closing the gap on um, feeling isolated as a woman in our community. Um, and I think that that is what's going to keep that number from dropping as fast as it is, is connection. And inclusiveness. And inclusiveness, yes. Yeah. For men and women. Um, but just, I I hate seeing the number of our hunters dropping. And um, and it it is hurting our community. And so, I don't know. It's just how do we, how do we grow our numbers? How do we fill in the gaps? How do we close that circle tighter? I I have a couple of ideas, maybe. Um, but I'm wondering, do you have any ideas? <laughs> do you have well, any I, suggestions? I think, I think what you're doing is fabulous is that you're you're telling your story and you are creating a platform for other people to tell their story. Mm. And it's one of those elements we look historically at our ancestors or even at modern indigenous people Mm -hmm. and there is a tremendous storytelling culture that you sit around the campfire and you tell stories that have specific characters roles and myths and ultimate conclusions and morals to to why you're even saying it Mm -hmm. and so if as the hunting community can become better individual advocates and tell our individual stories, we break through not just to the the non-hunters, but also we break through stereotypes that we categorize ourselves in. Right, right. And this this ties back to, to images. You know, try, I, I have a hashtag that I started with the leopard is that honor the hunt. And this was a series of photos that I'd actually taken prior to hunting that leopard of other species. Mm -hmm. And 
they were specifically designed. I gave it to my pH and I said, I want a few moments with my animal and I want to admire him and look at him and give thanks Mm -hmm. and say some prayers and just kind of calm down from the adrenaline and the, you know, the buildup of, of, of the harvest. Mm -hmm. But I want you to stand right here and I want you to take pictures of it because I want to see what it looks like. Mm -hmm. And some of those images, those first images were extremely powerful because even though it was quote unquote, a dead animal in a photo, it was not what we, what we call a, a trophy photo or no. a grip and grin photo. Right. It told a different story. Right. And even though in our culture of modern hunting, trophy photos are prevalent. I mean, you, you know what a trophy photo is. Yep. Mm-hmm. You, you have an instantaneous image of what it is when I say that word. Yeah. And unfortunately, that image and that terminology has been completely weaponized by the anti-hunting community against us. Yes. And when we have the ability to, for instance, do very simple changes mm-hmm. that tell a different story, such as not smiling or looking away from the camera or having a different angle, covering the blood, putting the tongue back in, taking the weapon out of the image. Very, very simple, subtle things. It begins to tell a different story. Mm -hmm. And that's the story that will change the narrative of who we are as individuals and what we do and why we do it. Right. It takes the distractions out. It takes the, um, like you said, it tells the story in a different way, in a different light, and it shows more respect to the animal, to ourselves as hunters, and to those who might not be in our community. So, I mean, you, you got to look at it from the other side's perspective. That yes. You look at a trophy photo, and it's like, why the heck is that person smiling over a dead animal? Right. That's weird. Right. You know, and that might be as far as their thoughts go, but that's where, <laughs> that's what they're thinking. That is what they're thinking. And so, and it, it's like, wait a second, how, how do I perceive myself in that picture where I can show it to another hunter and they get it and they don't see anything wrong with it. Mm-hmm. And it, you know, it's fine within our community, but to anyone else out there, the 80% that, <laughs> that are, are the in-between non-hunting world that can go one way or another, we need to do a better job. Yeah. I agree. And it, it's not just, it's not just, oh, poor me, I'm the victim of social media campaign to, to name me and shame me. It's no, this, that, that was never about Brit Longoria. That was about hunting and hunters. Right. Exactly. And it takes you back to your why again. It all goes back to that foundation of why you hunt. Um, because if you stay true to that reason, if you really investigate it and get it down to the, the deepest bottom line, then everything that filters up from that foundation will always come back to that. Um, and I think that it's, it's a really good, I mean, even if you have to write it on your backpack, if you've got to write your why somewhere to remind you even during a hunt, um, 
with each picture that you post, with each word that you use, with with everything that you do, the way that you um, the way that you stalk, the way that you hunt, the way that you take um, a shot. If you keep that in your mind, then no matter what other people say, you can always take it back to that why. And it's almost a, it's almost a safeguard for your your own soul in hunting. And and no one can argue Mm-mm. your heart and soul. No, you know, good, bad, and different in the culture we live in today. Emotions and being politically correct do not touch that subject. No, you 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 respect someone else's emotions. Yeah, you can argue as much as you want about facts and figures. And exactly, I'm right and you're wrong. But when you when you show that internal narrative. It's like, whoa, I don't, okay, that's your opinion. Okay, I I don't have anything to argue with that. Exactly. I've literally, I've seen the needle move on the narrative. And I've seen people start to post images that have that honor the hunt feel. Mm -hmm. And the comments and the likes might not be as high as the trophy photo, but... It makes people pay attention and it makes the people that you don't know are looking and watching and listening. They're the ones that get it and are hearing it. And they're the ones we care about more than those likes. Yep, exactly. Very, very true. Well, tell me really quick, what, what are some of your, um, your goals? What's your outlook for this, this coming year or the season that's left? Um, this coming year, we have we still have a, another Pakistan hunt coming up um, at the end of this year and the beginning of next year. Okay, we have um, so that, that's again mountain species. Then we have some kind of West African plans. I'm hoping for a dream animal, which is a Lord Derby eland. Ooh. That's one of my like <laughs> gives me goosebumps thinking about it. Uh-huh. Um, so that that's going to be a big hunt this spring. Uh, this summer, we'll probably find ourselves in Asia. We're looking at doing a little bit of European stuff as well as um, some kind of like Mongolia type species. Mm-hmm. Um, and... Yes, and then of, then of course our our hunting here around Texas, which is you know just family friends, quail hunting, pheasant shoots, dove hunting, whitetail, mm-hmm. all the all the fun stuff, all the local stuff. Yeah, it's um, I think that. I'm reminded when I I like to set goals every year, and I'm reminded that one of the major goals is that I would grow forward and not take steps backward. And, um, and so I want to always be learning which hunting is the best. Um, I mean, just like anything out there, it's always moving forward. It is always growing. There is always something to learn. And I love that about it. So that's my, my goals each year involve growth in some form or fashion. Um, and I think that that goes behind each new species that you're looking at because you yourself are having to educate yourself on it. Like you said earlier, you have to learn about your animal. You have to learn how they move, how they smell, how they see 
the anatomy, um, the environment that you're going to be going through, the prep for it, all of it. And that's the exciting part of it um, is everything that gets you there. Yeah, I mean, and that's all part of the hunt. Mm-hmm. I mean, it, it, it's you have that anticipation and excitement. Like you, you heard probably heard my voice change when I said Lord Derby Ewan, but I was yes. like, oh, <laughs> like the, you know, yes, it's, it's that excitement and that connection to that individual animal mm-hmm. that you know drives us to do what we do. Yeah, and that's what's so cool is that I'm already connecting to what I'm going to hunt, where I'm going to hunt, you know, all the different little layers. Yes. I agree. I agree. Well, um, I want to thank you for hanging out with me today. I have enjoyed it. It has been, um, it's been a great way of hearing perspective and hearing a story and hearing, um, just where you're coming from as a woman. And I know I'm a woman too, but we are, like we have said over and over and over, we are all different women and men. And so I have loved hearing what makes you tick in this. Well, thank you, Amy. I I really appreciate it. And I totally appreciate your support online with Instagram with at Britt Longoria and your comments are awesome and keeps me, keeps me going. <laughs> <laughs> I'm so glad. Well, tell people really quick how they can follow you um, and how they can be a part of your support team. I would say, I, I first of all, would love to challenge everyone listening to this to post an honor the hunt photo. So mm-hmm. hashtag honor the hunt and Think about how the image is going to tell the story, whether it's your hand on the animal or a close-up of the horns or the lashes or something that moves something inside of you. Post that and talk about it. And you can follow me at BritLongoria.com. That's where I post blogs about different ideas that run through my head or experiences and adventures. And then I post daily at Brit Longoria on Instagram. All right. Well, thank you, Britt. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Amy. You have a great day. Thank you. Okay. So go follow Britt at BrittLongoria.com or her Instagram handle, Britt Longoria. Thank you for listening. Follow and tag us on Instagram at Western Contours. Jump on iTunes, Google Play, and Podbean. Subscribe, leave us a comment, and don't forget to hit that five-star rating. We appreciate the support, and until next time, lay them down. Hey, everyone. This is Andrew with Sasquatch Fuel. If you're heading into the backcountry this season and you need some meals that don't bog you down, Check out SasquatchFuel.com. Our 100% compostable packaging was designed to combat litter in the backcountry. For more information on conservation in action, head to SasquatchFuel.com. Hey guys, enter code WESTERNCONTOURS at checkout and save a few bucks off your order.